Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. Our nation's founders gathered in taverns to enjoy lively conversation over a local brew, and so do we. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Aaron Jordan. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Ben. We have a wonderful panel, as usual, on stage here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. We sure do. Tonight we have our regular Pints and Politics group of Todd Dorman, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor. Tom Barton, Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief. And Althea Cole, Gazette Columnist. Joining us tonight is Megan Goldberg, an assistant professor of American politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. All right, Megan. Now, thanks to all of our panelists for being here tonight, because I know they've put in extra hours this week uh, covering elections or commenting on the elections. Um, Tom, you tweeted Wednesday that, that Wednesday should have been buy a reporter a coffee day. Um, I wonder, did you consume a lot of coffee um, the morning after the election to, to get in there on that second day? Uh, yes, I did. And uh, to be quite honest, I, I lost count. It, uh, I will, <laughs> I'll, I'll quote uh, um, Ty Rushing from Iowa starting line, um, the coffee was no longer coughing at one point. <laughs> I want to mention at the outset here, we have, of course, a lot of races that are unclear um, and across the country. This is being written for our radio audience. Uh, just that they know, uh, this is being recorded Thursday evening on uh, the, the 10th. And uh, between now and the time this is broadcast, there may be some changes there. But let's, let's dive in, Aaron. Uh, we wanted to talk about the national scene first, but really they're kind of mixed up. This is an interesting outcome. I don't think anyone would have predicted when we put Iowa in the national context, isn't it? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, just kind of thinking about that, so there's so many close U.S. House races that haven't been called yet across the country um, as election officials are kind of counting those absentee ballots. Um, I, I think pundits are predicting Republicans will gain control of the House, but they're not sure by how much, and the Senate is more of a toss-up. Megan Goldberg, I wanted to ask you about the national scene, and we'll focus on Iowa more as we the evening progresses here, uh, but of course the Democrats Democrats uh, were campaigning on uh, reproductive rights um, and uh, also threats to democracy itself, the GOP on inflation, uh, crime, uh, the border crisis, and so forth. Uh, in the national scene, which, which of those narratives had more sway? Um, which one staved off the, the big red wave? Yeah, I think it's hard to say, but there was a, a Notre Dame professor who had, she compiled these numbers uh, that I was like, oh, oh. Uh, the Democratic totals uh, in states that had abortion directly as an initiative, referendum, uh, and the votes that are pro-reproductive rights, like pro-abortion access, far outweigh the Democratic votes. Uh, and so I, I think I, we talked about this on River to River at one point, 
And I think it has sort of come to fruition, too, that Democrats are not necessarily translating those sort of pro-abortion votes into votes for themselves, too. Um, so I think that there, you can tell a story with some of the, the aggregate level data about abortion being really important. Surely we have lots of interviews with people saying that that's why they showed up. Uh, but I think that there's, we should have like a little bit of hesitation in saying this totally you know, went in Democrats' favor when uh, you sort of look at that comparison. We had several states with ballot measures that concerned abortion. And, you know, we could, we could think, well, what if Iowa had had one of those uh, ballot measures concerning reproductive rights? Would it have looked differently here? I, I wonder if you've thought that too, uh, Megan. So I think that one thing it could do is, is boost turnout, right? People showing up to vote for that. Uh, I don't think that I, I uh, what I really want to see is like ballot roll off for the, uh, our constitutional amendment. Uh, Iowa sticking it on the back of the ballot makes a big difference. Um, but I think that something like that, and I don't think there was a lot of awareness that that was on the ballot. Um, my students were making voter guides and all of them left it off their voter guide. And I was like, oh, guys. This is sort of important. Um, and so I, I think that it could have boosted turnout a little bit, though. So we were talking about how Republicans, um, you know, well, Republicans gained fewer seats than maybe were expected on the national level, um, but they may still have control of both houses of Congress. How would that affect the progress of legislation um, that President Biden might want to move forward in the second half of his term? Well, he, he, I mean, he had an incredibly hard time moving legislation in his first term because there were some more moderate senators, Joe Manchin famously, and Kristen Sinema from uh, Arizona, who, you know, left him short of the votes he needed in the Senate uh, to do much of what he, did, what he wanted to do. So, you know, sometimes it, it's funny for, for presidents I mean, the, the 1990, you know, uh, Bill Clinton got elected in 1992, and 1994 was a big Republican wave, and everyone's like, oh, Clinton's toast. But then what happened was the Republican Congress played a good foil to the president. I mean, the president had an enemy to fight and someone to say, you know, look at this, look at what they're doing, you know, and it just it provided him with a focus. And I think if Republicans do take the Senate and the House, you may see that with, with Joe Biden, that, I mean, he can go across the country and campaign and, and point to the inaction of, of, you know, the Republican Congress. And also, uh, you know, if, if they decide to do a million investigations and maybe even impeach him for some reason, I mean, I think those are, those are going to be interesting fights for him to have and, you know, going into, if he decides to run again, which is kind of an open question, but it, it sounds like he's leaning that direction. I want to get to the other panelists. I want to remind our radio listeners, it's a special edition of River to River, Pints and Politics, recorded Thursday evening, uh, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. Ben Kiefer with my co-host Aaron Jordan. On our panel, we have um, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, uh, and Tom Barton, and our special guest on the panel, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College of Political Scientist. As far as we can see, the the Republicans will take the U.S. House, maybe just by a few seats. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, we don't know that for sure yet. But if they do, then it seems Kevin McCarthy would be the majority leader. And I, I wonder if we can look at this through the lens of the GOP here, uh, since we're sort of imagining the future early 2023. 
with uh, all four of our U.S. Um, seats uh, here in Iowa uh, now occupied or will be occupied by Republicans, um, Hinson, Miller Meeks, Feenstra, and uh, the representative-elect uh, Zach Nunn. Uh, will Kevin McCarthy have unity there among Republicans, or will we see once they are in power in the House, there will be some, um, we've got the Freedom Party Caucus, for instance, will they be in line with a more mainstream leader like Kevin McCarthy? What are thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think they will because um, Kevin McCarthy um, has been very supportive of these candidates in, in their campaigns. Um, uh, and actually, uh, Ashley Henson tweeted today that uh, she plans to vote for Kevin McCarthy uh, as speaker. Um, and uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, um, was a, a, a very influential uh, a presence back in 2020 for Marionette Miller Meeks um, during uh, that uh, uh, contested race uh, uh, against uh, Rita Hart. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> So, yeah, I mean, I see Marionette Miller-Meeks voting for McCarthy as speaker. Again, Ashley Hinton has said that she supports him. Um, Randy Feenstra, I think, will also support him as well because um, I think McCarthy has also campaigned with him and helped out um, uh, his race, and, and I don't, yeah, I don't see Zach But, but if you have the Senate still in Democratic hands, it's going to be a need, to, unless it's just nothing gets done, a need for compromise. So will that Freedom Party caucus be willing to compromise Megan, you look like you have I mean, an answer to that. So I, I actually think it could be kind of a wild speaker election uh, because I think going, I mean, thinking about 1994, part of the reason Newt Gingrich won the speakership so handily is because he convinced all of these freshmen uh, members of Congress that he was responsible for their election. And I think that we could have some wild cards in the incoming Republicans. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how, how much they're devoted to making trouble uh, for the party. But I also think, I've just been thinking about the, the district where I grew up uh, was where uh, Jackie Walorski represented us. Uh, and so she died in a car, like a random car accident this summer. And so with a house this close, like all of these special elections and vacancies that come up because of random things that happen um, are going to be just like so consequential. It's going to feel like the entire two years, we have the potential for like the Georgia runoff level stakes. Hmm. Uh, and so I think it could be in for like a, a dramatic two years in terms of who's the control sort of being up in the air. So three audience questions, very similar um, here, kind of talking about um, financial support. You know, how do we think uh, money played into this and did the Democratic Party support the Iowa candidates? In terms of uh, the National Party, um, no, and, and that's been a consistent um, criticism and concern um, that uh, I heard leading up to the election and then afterward. Um, so, um, you know, shameless plug for, for the Gazette, but, uh, you know, watch the, the Gazette this weekend, uh, working on an article, taking a look at, you know, where does Iowa Democratic Party go from here? Um, and uh, I had a chance to speak with um, Jennifer Conference, the 
excuse me, Iowa, uh, the Democratic leader in the Iowa House. Um, and uh, she flat out, you know, said and was honest, you know, uh, frankly, we didn't have national support um, from the party, um, whereas um, on the Republican side, you did see a, a lot of money being poured into the congressional races and particularly um, the U.S. Senate race. Um, and so that's why you saw a lot of those attack ads that, that you mentioned. And she said, you know, we tr the the, the State Democratic Party tried to do their best to, um, you know, target their resources where they thought that they were going to be most ex successful and target the races where they thought, um, you know, they would be most most consequential. Um, but um, she said, quite frankly, you know, we as a, as a state party, you know, just didn't have the resources um, that they did on the other side. And the big reason for that, again, was because uh, you didn't have the support from, from national donors and from the national party. Althea? Um, I, I think, you know, the, the lack of funding from the National Democratic Party is definitely a sign that they've given up on Iowa and, you know, you should not expect the 2024 caucuses to begin in the state of Iowa. I know that they, that the Democratic Party had purposely delayed the announcement of the new uh, caucus kickoff lineup until after the election. Um, I don't think that had anything to do with Iowa. I realize that Chuck Grassley was in, you know, the tightest race he's been in since he first ran in 1980. Um, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> me either. Me either. <laughs> now that being said, I no, I don't. I don't think they necessarily delayed their announcement um, out of, you know, concern for the fact that it might cause Franken to lose a race that he would otherwise win. I think it had more to do with the race in New Hampshire, um, Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan, who did pull it off against her challenger. Um, so now, you know, we wait to see what the Democratic Party has in store for Iowa. I'm not optimistic about it. I don't think anybody else is. So Chuck Grassley survived another challenge to win an eighth term in the U.S. Senate. This was despite many Iowans polled saying they thought the 89-year-old was too old to keep serving. Um, lots of people predict Grassley will step down at some point in this term and allow Governor Reynolds to appoint a replacement. I wonder, have you guys ever heard him address that? He has. I mean, he's been asked about it repeatedly, and his, his um, answer has always been that it's fully his intention to, to serve a full term. Um, you know, whether he does, I mean, I, I think that... You know, is still an open question. Remains to be seen. Um, Same energy as when they're like, "No, I'm not running for president," right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. Or like for a coach, "No, I'm not leaving for another school." Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Like you know, the, the the fully intend is is not exactly definitive, but uh, I mean, I, I I think you know, people I talk to believe that you know, if if he wants to step down sometime in the next four years. Kim Reynolds will still be governor, and and I think maybe the smart money is on maybe U.S. Senator Ashley Henson being appointed or or someone like that. I mean that's I mean I think that's I mean there's all this talk about that his grandson would, and and that's that's actually not going to happen. Yeah. I think I think too. I mean one of the things it, it wouldn't shock me if he really does want to try to serve his whole term uh, because I don't think there's this. I, I don't think it's strategic to get an appointed person when I, I don't think they're insecure about their chances of electing a Republican in an open seat, not after this cycle. I, I think that maybe I, this would like hold a little more water if it were more competitive. Uh, and I know the race was his biggest challenge in ever, but that's still, I think they're 
they view it as a safe Senate seat for them. Here's a question from our audience here at CSPS, wants to cast us forward um, in our thoughts. Would Biden be able to defeat any other Republican presidential candidate besides Trump here? So we get into the old 2024 thing and we have the rise, the rapid rise, uh, based on these results of Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, has Trump seen his zenith? That would be an extreme version. Or um, what about Biden in 2024? Thoughts on that? This questioner wants to know. I don't think that Joe Biden would have a chance against a whole lot of GOP candidates. I think the Democratic Party really wants Trump to run in 2024 and see that matchup. I know as a Republican, I, I am the most just horrified at the idea of Trump being on the ticket against Joe Biden. So, you know, I, I, we're going to discuss hopefully a little bit later the fact that the, you know, uh, impending red wave was not maybe even a red trickle. Um, I, I mean, it, it hasn't even been decided yet officially that Republicans are in control of the House. We're still waiting on all that mm -hmm. with bated breath. Um, but what we already do know is, is that Republicans did not get what they wanted, let alone expected. And so they've got you know, uh, the big Trump question on their hands now. I would rather they have it now than you know, in 2024 or even during the caucus process. So that's... <laughs> Elaborate as a conservative columnist. It would be interesting, I think, to hear because you wrote I'm about. I'm a conservative that... columnist, really. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote uh, a column that talked about policy, not party, has my vote. So, yes, what are I you did. driving at there? Um, I, I just that you know some of the things Republicans have said and done really are okay with me, and so I base my vote on that. Right. Um, and it, yeah, I. That's pretty much it. It, I mean, the, the, you know, the stories, the stories out of the election are that Trump, you know, Trump's back, Trump backed candidates, spit that out, uh, didn't do as well as he would have hoped and didn't do nearly as well as Republicans would have hoped, which when we were talking about Kevin McCarthy. I mean, he's got to evaluate now. If he does become House Speaker, do you do you put Jim, the Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world in, in high leadership positions, or do you read the tea leaves and say maybe this, maybe we should pull back from from the from the Trump train? But you know, it, we've we've all been waiting a long time for the Republican Party to sort of say, yeah, Trump, maybe we should sort of not do that. And, and, and betting on that has been not a, not a lucrative <laughs> wager because, I mean, he led an insurrection at the Capitol and he, he was still the leader of the party. I mean, he's, he took, you know, top secret documents to Mar-a-Lago. He's done all of these things. But, you know, it's possible that the, the prospect of losing elections bothers Republicans a lot more than all of that malfeasance. Did, did he cost the Republicans a better, a, a better outcome in the midterms? He, well, he, I, I think he, he gave, you know, I think he, you know, provided sort of a push for some candidates that probably never should have been nominated. I mean, they just weren't high-quality candidates, and that's why they had, you know, problems on election night. So that... It may be at long last, like I say, that, that they decide that 
You know, it's kind of like Steve King. Steve King was fine until it was like, oh, Steve King might cost us a congressional seat, so let's get rid of Steve King. So it's like, this may be, well, Donald Trump was okay. He rallied the base. He did all of that. But now he might start costing us elections. So let's back away from that. But I hear that he's very, still very popular in the first in the nation caucus state. So if he runs for president, he's, he, you know, he's got that going for him. So an Iowa poll conducted October 31st through November 3rd, so not that long ago, said Iowans preferred Republicans in all four House districts. And that did come to pass. So I wanted to ask the panelists, there's been a lot of talk at the national level about how they, uh, people don't think the polls were as accurate as they could be. How do we feel about the polls in Iowa? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, okay, uh, ugh, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this. I, I have trouble as someone who does, I don't do polling, but I do public opinion research. Uh, the, the swings in the Seltzer polls worry me. That's like the, the Franken poll and Grassy poll that was close, and then it was huge. Um, people don't change their minds like that in that short of a time span. Um, so that inconsistency worries me, but I think... Um, for the nationwide, I think the picture for polling is not that bad. I think the picture for our friendly polling aggregates at 538 and other places, um, maybe this was like a little bit of an off year for, in some of the races, but overall, I think it's like not as bad as maybe other people think. I think it's a rosier picture. Well, that's good. I know, and that, and we had talked in the last Pints in Politics just about how some of those polls were done without asking about specific candidates. They were more just done about asking about party. Does that kind of change what we can expect for results or the quality of the results? I think whenever possible, you should absolutely ask about the candidates instead of the party. Um, because you're... I, I, Republicans had such enthusiasm going into the race, and look, look how everything has gone so far. So clearly, the enthusiasm that, were sh that was showing in the polls, it didn't actually translate into who won what race. Again, I, don't, I am not going to believe it until I see it that the Republicans are going to take control of the House, and maybe that's just me being a pessimist, maybe that's just me being a Cyclone fan. You never, ever assume that you're going to win ahead of time. <laughs> Maybe we should do some polling to see what people want us to improve <laughs> with, with polling. I mean, you know, I think 80 or 90 percent of people think polling should be better. <laughs> and I, I just made that up, but I mean, you know, <laughs> we could take a sample here, I guess. We've reached the halfway point. We're going to take a break. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. Aaron Jordan with me as co-host, uh, and also Tom Barton, Todd Dorman, uh, Althea Cole, and our guest panelist, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Let our audience stretch their legs, refresh their drinks. When we come back, we'll focus more on uh, the state results uh, here and how Republicans, with few exceptions, uh, ran the table, won up and down the ballot. We'll be back in just a moment with more of Pints and Politics.
Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. And we're back with this special Pints and Politics edition of River to River presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. Ben Kiefer with Aaron Jordan and our panelists. Welcome back to the second half. All right, I'm going to start off the second half of our show about state and local politics with this audience um, sort of rhetorical question, but it made Ben um, burst out in laughter, so I think it's worthwhile. They say, should we change the interstate welcome signs to, welcome to Iowa, just like Alabama, but with lousy winters? It feeds into uh, my first question. Uh, So there was conversation about the red wave um, not breaking nationally, but it obviously did in Iowa. Um, Tom, what does that breakdown look like now for the Iowa legislature? Yeah, so uh, Republicans grew their majorities in both the Iowa House and the Iowa Senate um, as it stands right now. um, And it should be noted that, look, all these these are all unofficial results. You know, it's not official until um, the uh, canvas and then um, certification by uh, by the state board. And also the Iowa Secretary of State just uh, announced that he's ordering an administrative recount in Scott County. So, um, you know, those results could change depending on what happens with, um, with that administrative recount. But as things stand right now, um, Republicans uh, are poised to pick up... Uh, Two, two seats in the Senate um, for a uh, 34 to 16 majority, so they would get a so they would get a they would get a, a super majority, a two thirds majority, um, which means that Democrats would not be able to block uh, gubernatorial um, uh, nominations or appointees. Um, in the Iowa House, um, it looks like right now they're poised to pick up uh, four seats. So yeah, so they would they would they would have a, a 64-36 majority, excuse me, in the House. And Republicans already held the governor's office in a large majority in both houses, but with an even bigger majority, what kinds of bills do you think might be introduced in 2023? You you definitely saw um, a big push um, this election cycle, um, both from state uh, statewide legislative and then also congressional campaigns um, focusing on parental choice um, and, and so I think you're definitely absolutely gonna gonna see that um, come to play in uh, in the next legislative session um, and um, you know Reynolds and, and and her backers you know pointing to those results and, and, and pointing to that and saying that uh, you know Iowans have you know kind of clearly articulated the message that you know yes, you know, we need to quote unquote, you know, make sure the parents are, are, are in charge of their um, child's education and, and giving them more more choice, more rights. So, um, I think you're definitely going to see that be a a, a big issue coming up in um, 2023. 
I think w one thing I'm also curious uh, and watching is to sort of see what sort of abortion legislation we get. I think that Reynolds has sort of shown that she's t perhaps taking this route through the courts. Uh, I think that's strategic to avoid uh, asking anyone to vote on it. Um, but I think that on the other hand, you know, I, I alluded to the fact I'm from Indiana. Uh, Indiana passed uh, a more restrictive abortion bill in the spring that divided the party, especially when it came to trying to pass amendments that banned trying to get the language right, it banned exceptions in the case of things like rape and incest. Um, and so it divided the party, but then Republicans also, like Iowa, run, won handily sort of all over the state. And so I don't think it, it does, doesn't look like it had consequences electorally. Um, so, you know, I don't know if Iowa will sort of take a lesson from that in a case of policy diffusion here and uh, take up abortion in the legislative session as well. I'll, uh, I'll be interested to see if there's any push to remove gender identity from the state civil rights code. I mean, a lot of Republican candidates, including congressional, legislative, statewide, the governor, uh, basically came in here and talked about Linmar's policy, which is where my kids have gone to school. They have a, a transgender support policy, which basically protects kids from being bullied and harassed at school. It, it's not the school district, you know, encouraging people to change their genders like you might have seen in many Republican attack ads. Uh, but they made that sort of as a center, they, they made Linmar a centerpiece of this argument that, you know, schools are radical liberal indoctrination centers with pornographic books and all of that and we need to give parents rights. I, I mean, forget parents like me that don't have a problem with the transgender support policy, but uh, I mean, if they really want to make that so that it has to, th those policies have to go away, you basically have to take gender identity out of the Civil Rights Code because right now, allowing discrimination against transgender Iowans students is illegal under the Civil Rights Code. In, in a resounding fashion, Iowa voters approved the one ballot measure on the back of our ballots, um, declaring that Iowans uh, have a right to gun ownership, but going uh, beyond the, the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, over 700,000 Iowans voting in favor. That's almost double uh, the number of Iowans who voted against this measure. And just to recap, it states that the Iowans have the fundamental individual right to keep and bear arms. And then there's this legal term, strict scrutiny, uh, sets a very high legal bar goes beyond the protections of the Second Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. Now, opponents say that will make it harder to pass new gun safety regulations. Um, supporters say that amendment is necessary to protect Iowans' gun rights from infringement. Now, my question for the panel here is, how many uh, voters do you think understood what they were voting for? I have a feeling if you would take an exit poll and say, w would you mind sharing what you voted for on the ballot measure, uh, that some would have said, I like the term strict scrutiny. I find, found nothing objectionable there. Do you think it was understood? Uh, no, not, not, not at all. Based off of the phone calls and emails that, uh, that I received, um, that uh, my colleague Aaron, Aaron Murphy and others at the Gazette received, and then also based off of, I guess, just my own uh, exit polling that, that I did. I, I went out to um, a couple of uh, polling locations and, and, and talked to voters, and um, it was clear um, from most that I spoke to that, uh, no, they, they didn't have a clear understanding
understanding as to what they were voting on and what that language meant. In fact, I spoke to um, a couple of voters who said that they voted for the amendment and said, yeah, there should be strict scrutiny as to who should have guns. Uh, it's, 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 it's an easy mistake it's an to easy, make. It's, 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 an, it's an easy mistake because it's, it's not clearly understood language. I wanted to ask, um, in addition to gaining more legislative seats, Republicans won, all four, won four statewide races, governor, treasurer, attorney general, and agriculture secretary. Um, the state auditor race incumbent Democrat Rob Sand, I think, is ahead by 2,600 or so votes, but there has been... Um, a, a recount has been um, requested there. Um, so Governor Reynolds, who won handily over Deidre Dugier, said last spring she wanted her own attorney general and auditor. She may get what she wants. I guess what changes would you expect to see um, with the GOP in control of these statewide positions? <clears throat> well, I mean, as it pertains to the Attorney General's office, I mean, uh, Brenna Bird has made clear that you're going to see um, uh, Iowa um, filing or joining a lot more lawsuits challenging uh, the Biden administration and challenging executive orders, excuse me, executive orders um, from Biden and the Biden administration and, and you know, pushing back on um, regulations that, uh, that they feel are um, uh, unfair and, and particularly harm Iowans and, and harm uh, Iowa farmers. Um. Well, I, I think that uh, the focus on the, the AG race also sort of speaks to Reynolds' larger plan, which if you listen to the, the rhetoric of the campaign, the campaign messaging, um, it was really about pushing back against Biden, against Pelosi, um, and it's really like nationalized race. Uh, and, and we saw Brenna Bird do that as well, um, with references to, to Biden's agenda. Um, the attorney general plays an important role in joining these lawsuits, um, and it was a weak point for Reynolds over the past administration that she didn't have an attorney general who was, uh, jo you know, aiding and joining these lawsuits. And she had pushed back against that, because I think someone, correct me if I'm wrong, but she wasn't allowing the attorney general sometimes to sign on to lawsuits that he had wanted to sign on to. Um, because she doesn't want, she didn't want Miller to sign on to lawsuits uh, that were opposed to her, um, her ideology and her, and her party. Um, and so Burr just sort of fit nicely into that package, I think. Well, I, I think it's a, a further erosion of, of, you know, oversight, checks and balances. Uh, I mean, if, the, if Rob Sand ends up winning, they will have one lonely outpost in the, uh, in the state house where some of that might happen. If not, I mean, we've already seen the legislature basically take a pass on providing any oversight of the executive branch while Kim Reynolds is governor. I mean, she can misspend pandemic relief funds. I mean, there's just a list of things that she's done that ordinarily you would think a legislative oversight committee or some oversight committee would call people in on the carpet and ask to know why this happened. That, that hasn't happened at all with this legislature. Althea, any comments on these down ballot victories by Republicans in the state? Boy, did my people clean up those statewide executive races. Holy cow. Um, what wasn't expected, I, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that that everybody in here is as thrilled about that as some of my friends are. Um, but I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a little bit more muted in my enthusiasm for that simply because I don't think the changes are going to be as great and as grand as uh, they may seem. Um, executive offices are different than legislative offices. You know, I, I mean, the legislators are the ones that make the policy. The executive offices are just the ones that implement that policy. And so that means a lot of managing staff, a lot of doing, you know, making sure that they are following the orders according to the laws that are written by a different uh, part of state government. And that means, um, you know, uh, really I think the biggest changes would be whether or not the appointees who have run those offices for so long, particularly AG's office and the treasurer's office who, you know, they both served for literally decades, um, are they gonna keep those appointees? Are they going to get new appointees? Um, what kind of you know culture are they going to implement in those offices? Um, is it going to change? You know how is that going to affect the lower level employees? Ultimately, that's one of the things where that's one of the areas in which legislative policy doesn't matter. Um, management does, and management is not specific to Republicans or Democrats. And I say that having uh, worked in one capacity or another, or I should say more than one capacity, as an employee at the government level, um, both county and actually at the federal level for a brief period of time. Um, it doesn't matter if a Republican or a Democrat is in charge at the top, you got all this middle management and all of these employees who are your peers, and it, it's basically the same scene. I, I do not care for the way um, government bureaus are run regardless of what level they are or regardless of who is in charge. Again, because there's so little to no difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to actually running those offices. Let me remind our listeners on the radio, this is a special Pints in Politics edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio, partnering with The Gazette. I'm Ben Kiefer with my co-host Aaron Jordan on our panel, Tom Barton, Todd Dorman, and Althea Cole, our guest. Megan Goldberg, political scientist at Cornell College. Let me toss out another question from our audience here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. Um, who are the up and coming candidates for Iowa Democratic Party for 2024? So do we have any rising stars in the Democratic Party in the state? Well, I mean, if, if, if Rob Sand ends up surviving and is still the auditor, I mean, there were I mean, he has the ability to raise money. There were a lot of people that thought he should have run for governor, and he decided not to. So that would be one person that's on the list. Uh, I, you know, I think Jennifer Confers, the, the House Democratic leader, has shown that she's a very good communicator of the of the Democratic message, and uh, I think is has has a lot of skills. So I think those two. I mean, there's probably several others, but. I mean, those two are the first to come to mind. I think I would add uh, Sarah Trone, Gary, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. to, to, to that list. And, and my apologies if I butchered her last name. Um, yeah, but uh, her, her defeat of uh, uh, Senate President, or excuse me. What about the what about the Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls? So, well, I think you know, I, I, looking at sort of the the races, um, you know, there's a lot of Democratic candidates in their 20s, early 30s. Zach, we have Adam Zabner, first-time candidate, and that, that's not to say there there are some very young uh, Republican newly elected um, members as well. But I think. Um, you know, the, there's just this perpetual struggle as the state gets redder of where does this talent go? Um, and, you know, this is like, I'm, again, from Indiana, so like a, a Pete Buttigieg problem um, of someone like Zach 
what do you do next? Um, and so I think there's sort of filling out the bottom ranks in these districts that are uncontested or uncompetitive. If you look at the the vote margins uh, for both chambers in Iowa, they are giant margins in most places. Um, and so we have these now kind of experienced, successful Democratic members, but nowhere for them to go. Uh, because it's really risky right now to run for the House, to run for the Senate, to run for a statewide office, because it's hard to come back from losses uh, in those places. Before we wind up, I wanted to circle back to a, a topic we had in our last Pints in Politics a couple weeks ago, uh, namely that the, many of the GOP candidates uh, snubbed the traditional mainstream media outlets, um, skipping out on candidate forums, not responding to candidate questionnaires, uh, invitations to speak with edit editorial boards and so forth, and also declining just interview requests, uh, be it the Gazette, the Des Moines Register, or Iowa Public Radio. Um, the soapbox uh, at the State Fair only inhabited mostly by Democrats uh, this past summer. Uh, now the follow-up question, the obvious question here is, has this election shown the Iowa GOP doesn't need traditional mainstream media, uh, that they have been proven right? Well, not answering, you know, questions, you know, does make it easier to not um, say anything or, or reveal a, a policy stance that is unpopular. I mean, I think, you know, I, I mean, this is, I'm afraid this is only going to intensify. I mean, we saw on election night that KCRG was barred from covering the Republican Victory Party. I mean, we saw the last, we saw, well, you know, they did some reporting on uh, Jack Whitford's residency in his new district and, and some fact checks and things that I think Republicans didn't like. Um, you know, they already sent the, the press corps at the Capitol in the US, in the US Senate, in the Iowa Senate, up to the rafters, maybe they'll figure out a way to get them up to the cupola at the top of the dome this year. Uh, I mean, so it's, I mean, transparency is not on the agenda for, for Republicans. You know, it's, they didn't, they didn't show up at, they didn't show up at any of these events. They, they, you know, they haven't met with us in years, editorial board, and uh, because we're so very scary I mean, just so very scary. So I, I just read a, a piece of research today uh, while I was doing some literature review for this. Um, and it was basically suggested that local media, and the more people are exposed to local media, newspaper, uh, local broadcast news in particular, reduces the degree to which you let national politics drive your vote for members of Congress, for Senate, for governor. Um, and I was like, oh. Um, that seems important. And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, um, that Kim Reynolds is like out here reading the American Political Science Review, um, but I think that it's, like, it's intuitive in some ways that the more local news is telling you about idiosyncratic state policies, the more you let that drive your vote and not what's happening with Biden, what's happening with Nancy Pelosi or the squad or whoever. Um, the less that's driving your vote. And so I think that in that way, it's, it's you know, an intuitive finding in some ways. You don't talk to Two-Faced Todd Dorman. That's just, that's just the <laughs> fact. That's just what you don't do. <laughs> in an effort to end our evening on a lighter note, I want to uh, 
pose a couple, well, you have a choice panel between two questions that Aaron and I have uh, cooked up here. Uh, question one, uh, what aspects of this 2022 midterm campaign will you not miss in the least? I asked a few of our audience members before the show this question. Jane said she uh, wore out her mute button on the TV. <laughs> jo Jolene in our audience uh, told me she will mo not miss in the least Grassley telling us how fit he is. <laughs> So that's your, your one question you may answer. What, what will you not miss? The other question you may choose is, we have to remember we're in 2022. Uh, in 2012, just 10 years ago, it looked like Iowa was very much a purple state, had uh, helped reelect uh, President Obama. Um, so your challenge in this case, look forward 10 years to 2032. Imagine another dramatic course change in Iowa politics and perhaps make that in the form of a headline. Choose a headline from the future, 10 years in the future, or something you're glad to leave behind from this election cycle. Who would like to jump on one of those questions? First. <laughs> a sniff from Todd. I don't know if that's good mm. or not. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the headlines from 10 years ago for 1,000, Ben. No, this is headlines from 10 years in the future. 10 years in the future, I mean. 2032, sorry. yes. Sorry. Uh, how about half human, half cyborg, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley announces plans <laughs> for running for a 10th term. Well, I, that's all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank our panelists. We've got Althea Cole, Tom Barton, Megan Goldberg, and Todd Dorman. Thank you to CSPS, and thank you to our audience for supporting us in 2022. Pints in Politics recorded yesterday evening, November 10th, at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. My co-host was Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan. Our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton of the Gazette. Also joining us, political scientist Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. You can find out how to attend future Pints in Politics events at thegazette.com. Our producer and audio editor today, Danny Gear, sound engineer Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.